turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 15 this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. And if you do need a Bible, the men in the aisles have some copies of the scripture. Please get their attention and get a Bible from them. You'll get much more out of God's word this morning if you can see it as well as hear it. If you don't have a Bible, keep that as a gift and read it throughout the week and let God speak to you. Acts 15, we pick up this morning where we left off in verse 32 and we're going to make our way through the remainder of the chapter together and so if you turn to acts 15 as we do would you stand with me out of respect for god's word as i read our scripture it says now judas and silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words and after they had stayed there for a time they sent back with them greetings from the brethren to the apostles however it seemed good to silas to remain there Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches and father we humbly ask as we continue now in our worship through the opening of the word of god and letting your holy spirit speak to us from the scriptures those things that you want to say to us collectively as a church and individually we ask lord that you would just help us now to be attentive just mentally spiritually lord that we'd be yielded and expectant to what you want to say to us through this port of your word lord We ask that you'd speak to us now by your spirit, that you'd take that which would distract away and that you would minister clearly to our souls, Lord, that word that we need for this day from you. Bless your word, we ask in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. As it pertains to our physical health as human beings, there are various different types of exercises that we can participate in that can help develop strength and health and stability to our bodies. And I think that same thing applies spiritually as well. There is many different things that God can use to contribute to strengthening us spiritually. There are a lot of different things that God can take us through and subject us to, to strengthen us in our relationship with Jesus, to exercise us towards godliness, to develop into us spiritual strength and stability, whether it's as a person or as a church. And we see some of those things taking place here in our passage this morning. If you notice from our reading in the first verse, verse 32, that we'll look at together, it speaks of strengthening the brethren. And then the last verse that we'll look at together in verse 41, it speaks then of strengthening the church, strengthening the brethren, the individual believer, strengthening the churches that is collectively the body of Christ. In the midst of these verses, we find not all, it's not exhaustive, but some of those things that God uses to strengthen us in our spiritual lives. The background, remember, as we come into our text, Paul and Barnabas together with a group of other spiritual leaders, have just completed an important, if you would, spiritual council. The first church council, many would take place over the church history, but the first church council took place to discuss this major doctrinal issue regarding God's salvation. Remember, we saw what happened was that a group of teachers came from the area of Judea, to the church of Antioch, and they were trying to teach the believers there it was necessary for Gentiles to basically become Jews, to enter into Judaism and to observe all the customs of the law of Moses 
and to do such in order to be saved. And so they were questioning how people were saved. Well, this was not a small matter. And Paul and Barnabas, who had been preaching the gospel of grace, took a strong stand against this and refuted it. They knew that salvation was by faith alone and grace alone through the person of Jesus Christ. So ultimately, after some disputing, they determined that they should go up to Jerusalem to sort of the mother church where the apostles were, the original apostles who had walked with Jesus to discuss and and talk through this matter further to come to a firm and final resolution. So they went there and we saw last week in our chapter together as they worked through these things, they ultimately came to a conclusive decision and resolve that it was very clear that what these teachers were proposing was wrong and erroneous and that salvation was by grace That is a free gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he completed in his death and resurrection. And this was such a vital issue that then sent a delegation from the Jerusalem church back to the church of Antioch with Paul and Barnabas as they returned back. They sent some men with them with actually a written record of the resolution, not just a verbal confirmation, but a written record to go back and read this letter to assure and to encourage the believers there that salvation was by grace. And as they go back with this letter to read it to the people, we were told in the midst of that, that they purposely sent back some of their own leaders from the church of Jerusalem with them. Particularly, we're told that they sent back chosen men, it said, to report such things by mouth. And Judas and Silas are two of the men that we have mentioned that went back. That is, as they went back to read this letter, Judas and Silas were chosen to return with Paul and Barnabas to go to the church of Antioch to reinforce and assure this decision. So they now arrived back to the church of Antioch. They read the letter. They rejoiced over this wonderful thing. Thank goodness we are still saved. It is by grace alone and trusting in Jesus Christ. And the camera now shifts in chapter 15 back to the church in Antioch where they return to, and again, where Judas and Silas, who are representatives from the church of Jerusalem, are now spending some time there with the church of Antioch as well. Look with me back at verse 32, where our text picks up. It says, now Judas and Silas, these two men that came back with them, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren, it says, with many words. So take notice, as Judas and Silas, these two representatives from the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, are there with the church in Antioch, we see them redeeming the time by helping build up the spiritual lives of the believers there. It says there in our verse, in verse 32, that they were strengthening the brethren with many words. That is kind of like, if you can envision in your mind, almost like a strength and a conditioning coach would do for an athlete well that's what they were doing spiritually they were strengthening the lives of the believers they're making them stronger spiritually building up and helping them develop excuse me in their faith helping them overcome areas of weakness and make progress in their spiritual health and their spiritual stability well question how did that happen Well, you might simply say by these men knowing and exercising their spiritual gifts. By them knowing and exercising their spiritual gifts, as the result of that, they strengthened other believers. You see what it says in our text there, verse 32? Look at it. It says, being prophets, they exhorted and strengthened the believers with many words. A prophet, both in the Old Testament sense and a New Testament sense, That office is a reference to those who were spiritually anointed to be a spokesman for God. They were those who God anointed to speak forth a message from his heart to people. So the prophet would hear things from God and then he was an ambassador to then convey that message from God to the people so that they might know God's will or God's heart in a matter to help people by sharing a message from God. And their messages, the prophet's messages, were to inspire the people towards the things of God. 
It was to comfort God's people and to stir them up, to build them up spiritually, to be stronger. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, the Holy Spirit discussing how the gifts and ministry of the Spirit operate gives us a specific definition there of exactly what biblical New Testament prophecy, if it's of the Spirit, will look like. It says that the operation of the gift of prophecy spiritually would be this. It says, he who prophesies speaks edification, that is to build up, exhortation, that's to stir up or to inspire somebody, and comfort all men. So when somebody speaks a prophetic word, the gift of prophecy operates through the life of a believer, the Bible says it will do one of those three things. It will edify a person, build them up, and strengthen them in the things of the Lord, it will exhort them or challenge them, or it will comfort them and bring some consolation to them. It says there in verse 32, they exhorted them with many words. And understand that that term exhort or exhortation is not the same thing as teaching. Uh, exhortation is basically to challenge someone to act. It's to challenge someone to respond. It's after someone knows what they should do. Maybe that's what a teacher or an instructor does, or they already know kind of the right thing they should do. Exhortation is to inspire somebody to do the thing that they ought to be doing. It's that kick in the posterior to get them going to help them get moving or to challenge them maybe to stop and refrain from something they know they should no longer be doing. It's a way of speaking to, to kind of encourage or prompt a person to take a step, to act in some way, to do the right thing that they ought to do, to get going in the right direction. It's a way of speaking into the lives of believers to stir them up and to say, look, you need to act. You need to obey the Lord in some area. And these men knew what they were called to do in their function and what the Spirit had enabled them to do. And now we see them here exercising their ministry and gifting. And as a result, they're strengthening believers because they're operating in their function, knowing what the Holy Spirit had gifted and enabled them to do. They're helping and empowering and grounding further the Lord's people. And let me just say by way of application, one of the ways the Lord strengthens believers is in the same manner that we see taking place here through fellow believers amongst us exercising their giftings, their functions spiritually, knowing who the Lord has called us to be, each of us individually in the body of Christ. And the Bible describes the church as a body made up of many members with different functions and different purposes as a part of the collective body. Jesus being the head, which sends the signals to the whole rest of the body how to function properly. But we're all individually members of one another. And as we know what part of the body we are and what our gifting is and how the Holy Spirit wants to use us, as we exercise that, we build each other up. We strengthen the body of Christ. We strengthen fellow believers. 1 Corinthians 12 says the manifestation or operation of the Spirit's ministry working through our lives, it says is given to listen each one for the profit of all. So each one of us who is a believer has a, a, a capacity and an ability to be useful by the Holy Spirit and the purpose of that is to profit others, to build others up to do something of value and benefit to strengthen them spiritually. Romans 12 says it this way. Let me read it to you. It says, For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering, that is servanthood, helping. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives to do such with liberality or generosity, he who leads to do such with diligence, he who shows mercy or compassion to do such with cheerfulness. Look, let me say to you as the body of Christ this morning, how has the Lord gifted and called you spiritually? You should know that. That should be something that you determine and that you come to a, a level of understanding about. How has the Lord gifted and called you to strengthen fellow believers? 
He has. The Lord uses every one of his servants, every one of us is not just to be a recipient, but a participant in the ministry of the Lord's work, exercising our gifting, knowing what our calling is. Are you using the spiritual gifting the Lord's given you as you should? If not, you're weakening the body of Christ because you're refraining from strengthening maybe another believer or helping them in some way by simply not being yielded in faith and letting the Lord use your life to the fullness that he wants you. Are you doing your part in the church to help build others up spiritually? There are lots of ways it can be done. And as we each do our part, the body of Christ is strengthened, believers are helped. First Peter 4, a final section regarding this, says it this way, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion. So these men were using their gifts, strengthening the body. Look at verse 33 as our text goes on. It says, and after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. Verse 34, however, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. So take note here, verse 33 and 34, another thing God uses, we might say, to further strengthen to grow, to, to give stability spiritually to the people in his family is through periodically moving his servants around. Through periodically moving around his servants, the Lord actually used that as a way to strengthen others spiritually. Verse 33 and 34 here describe for us these events, how Judas and Silas, as we've seen, they travel back to the church of Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, bringing the letter of resolution. And they, the idea was that they would go there for a time. They would stick around. They would give the resolution. They'd answer any questions. They minister for a little bit. They're doing some work in ministry. And then they would return back to the Jerusalem church from which they were spent. So they spent a season, verse 32 tells us, ministering, strengthening the body of Christ there. And at this point, verse 33 and 34 describe how the church now kind of releases them and says, hey, thank you for what you guys have done. And they kind of are now released to kind of return back to the church in Jerusalem where they were from. And as they're planning to go back and return, something starts to stir inside the heart of Silas. Something starts to stir inside of Silas where he has a desire to stay where he's at rather than remain or return back to the church where he was. And something within him, he sensed that he was now to remain in Antioch and not go back to where he was. And Silas is kind of sensing this. Verse 34, and I hope it's in your text there. It should be. If not, let me read it to you. Some translations remove verse 34. But I think it's very insightful. It says, as they're planning to go back, verse 34, however, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. And let me just say, I totally believe that was from the Lord. The, the reading of our next verses confirmed to me that that was totally of the Lord, that it was the Lord that was stirring in him to remain there in Antioch. It was the Lord's spirit that was prompting him that it would be good to stay because that was right where Silas needed to be geographically for the next thing that God had for his life. That was right where he needed to remain for the next thing God was going to do in his life and how God was going to use his life because what was God aware of? That in the next few verses or the next few moments or days, Paul was going to need a new missionary partner. Paul was going to need somebody to accompany him on his second and third missionary journeys of which Silas ultimately does. And because Silas remained where he was as the Lord directed him to rather than return back to where he was originally, he was in the right place at the right time when events unfolded circumstantially so that Paul could choose him to ultimately be available to be this next missionary partner. So as they're offering to send these men back, Judas is packing his bags, right? And Silas is wrestling. It says there in verse 34, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. That is, he just had a desire for it. 
Something within him just prompted him in such a way where he wanted to stay. In his mind, it just seemed like it would be a good idea to remain there in Antioch rather than go back to Jerusalem. It just seemed like it would be the best and good thing to do in that moment. Now, he didn't have all the details. But again, the Bible tells us, I delight to do your will, O God. The idea is that when we oftentimes are being prompted towards the will of God, there should be an aspect of when God's leading you into his will that you actually would find enjoyment in it, pleasure in it. Sometimes as Christians, because we know we're called to sacrifice and be servant-hearted, we think that, you know, that we should dread to do the will of God. What would I really dread to do? Okay, that's got to be God. I mean, because that's what God wants to do, right? I mean, he wants to make me miserable and make me suffer. And look, I'm not saying we shouldn't sacrifice, but truth be told, if you're going to live for Jesus, I don't care if you're in Cuba, if you're in Canada, or you're Connecticut, or you're, you're, if you're going to live for Jesus, you should sacrifice and be a servant anywhere. You can suffer and sacrifice and serve anywhere. The important thing is that that should be the calling generally of every believer to some degree. We should be sacrificial and servant-hearted and willing to, to serve the Lord faithfully and endure what we need to to suffer in light of that. But that being said, there should be a measure of that. I have a sense of pleasure and fulfillment in what I believe God's leading me to do because I, I delight. There's a sense of fulfillment in it when God's genuinely calling you to do something. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to both will and to do for his good pleasure. So the Bible says, work out your salvation, not work for it. Work out the, the work of God's salvation through your life as a servant by recognizing that it's God who's working in you and I to will and to want to do according to his good pleasure. So how does God lead a believer as they walk out their salvation into his will and the things he's directing us to do? Well, well, if you're praying and reading the word of God and you're yielding to the Lord and want to be yielded to his spirit, the Bible says God writes his will on the fleshly tablet of our hearts. And so what does God do? God works in you to want to will and to want to do what would please him. So God says, it would please me if you would do this. So I'm going to put those desires to do what would please me into your heart so that it would please you to do it as well. And so that you'd want to yield to it and cooperate with it. So God works in us and then we're to work out what God is working into us by writing his will onto our heart. So certainly Silas, again, he didn't know what the next stage or season held, but God did. That's why it's good to stay in touch with God. And God knew exactly what was going to happen. So something just seemed good about not returning where he was, but rather remaining where he was presently. And so he kind of says, look, I think the Lord wants me to stay here. And so Judas now returns. Silas responds to the spirit and stays where God wants him to be. And let me just say what valuable insight in that little section there and what happens in this little vignette, this story of how, as I said, God moves around his servants on his divine chessboard. That's what God does. A couple things to take note of. First of all, they both went to Antioch and remained there temporarily, right? Both men went and remained there temporarily. And sometimes God sends and uses us in a location temporarily. Sometimes the Lord will send us to a spot. The Lord will have us in a location. God will give us something to do. And it's a temporary role for a season, for a set period of time. God uses us and wants us somewhere temporarily. Notice as well, Judas returns back to Jerusalem. That was his permanent post. He went back to his permanent post, the place where he was supposed to stay long term and remain serving there permanently. And sometimes God calls a person to stay somewhere long term. Sometimes there is nothing spiritual about looking for something new to do. Sometimes God calls someone to somewhere and he says, this is where I've called you. It's a permanent post for you. And I want you to stay here long term. Be faithful, put in your roots and stay there permanently. Thirdly, what happens with Silas? He decides to leave his past role of serving in Jerusalem and transition to a new role of now staying where he's at there in Antioch. 
And Silas basically embraces a transition for his life and ministry to begin serving in a new places. And thirdly, let me say this. At times, the Lord will also call people to leave their present role and what they were doing, if you would, in the, the past season and to embrace a new season. Sometimes the Lord will say, okay, you're done with that season. I have a new season, a new opportunity. And the Lord determines what servants are to be in what places for what times and how long. Our role as followers of Jesus is basically to be where we're supposed to be. And as we cooperate with the Lord in that, guess what happens? The Lord uses us to strengthen people if we're in the right place for the right times. And in the same way, if we're yielded to the Lord, whether it's to stay somewhere permanently, whether it's to just do something temporarily, whether it's to be open to a new opportunity, embrace a new season, that's how the Lord also strengthens us by us staying in step with him and being and going in the ways that he wants us to go. Well, verse 35 tells us now that Paul and Barnabas also remained there in Antioch in their home church, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So here we see another important way, if you would, that we can be strengthened spiritually in verse 35, and that's through the consistent preaching and teaching of the word of God through the consistent preaching and teaching of the word of God. We notice all throughout the book of Acts how the early church put a major emphasis on God's word as a way to stay healthy, to be strong. All the way back from Acts chapter two, where they devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' doctrine, to the teaching of the word of God. Back in Acts chapter 13, when we first saw the church of Antioch coming to its fruition, remember it says there before Paul and Barnabas went out on their first missionary journey, that there were prophets, plural, and teachers, plural, teaching the word of God to the people. So now Paul and Barnabas, two leaders, come back to the home church of Antioch, and what do they do? they resume the same ministry that they were functioning in before they left. They go right back, it says, verse 35 there, to doing what? Teaching and preaching the word of the Lord together with the others who are doing such there. Now, a lot of times we hear the word preaching, teaching, and we think the two are the same, the, the exact same thing. Well, preaching the word of God, teaching the word of God, all kind of the same thing. Well, from a biblical perspective, those two terms actually do refer to different things. Preaching, the Greek term that's used there, is more of a reference to the proclamation of truth or declaring an important message. Like an, an ambassador or a messenger sent from a king that comes and just kind of heralds the news about something. He opens a scroll and he reads off an edict or something like that. Preaching is a, a declaration, a proclamation of truth, give maybe some revelation or to stir someone to action or urge people to respond to some particular important news. So therefore we preach the gospel message. We proclaim the gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ and we urge people to respond to the gospel. Or as well, we can preach the word of the Lord or the word of God to believers who are saved by preaching a timely word. Maybe a, a timely word or a more topical message. And there's just something that's a timely word. And preaching is kind of that giving or proclaiming of a truth. And maybe it's a timely word that God's people need to respond to. Now, teaching, the other word that's described there, refers more to giving instruction for further understanding. Teaching is more of a ministry of giving people the ability to learn and increase in knowledge. It's providing explanation and understanding and application so that people increase in their knowledge of God or their understanding of how God works or how God doesn't work. It helps people to grow in their understanding of what they are to be doing and not to be doing. It gives them insight and further understanding. It grounds people. And the teaching ministry of God's word is vital to the health and the growth and the strengthening of the lives of believers because it helps people mature because it's consistent explanation. It's ongoing instruction to grow and make progress. Ephesians 4 says that God has given in the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for equipping the saints for the works of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, it says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to a perfect or mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, but by the trickery of men, excuse me, and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but instead speaking the truth in love, listen, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So again, the Bible teaches that God not only gives spiritual gifts to men and to women, but the Bible also teaches that God, by his spirit, gives gifted men to the church, to the body of Christ, to equip people, to teach them, to train them like a coach, to facilitate you know, progress and development so that we might be more useful, each one of us, in the different ministries that God's given to us so that we might mature and grow. And then as each part is doing its share, the body is strengthened and built up. Look, one of the greatest weaknesses in the modern church today, quite honestly, is a lack of spiritual maturity. That is probably one of the biggest weaknesses in the church collectively is just a lack of spiritual maturity. And a lot of that is attributed to a lack of biblical understanding. That people lack a sufficient understanding of the word of God. And a lot of that at times tends to a neglect of the teaching of the word of God. A lot of great preaching, but a lot of times we tend to fall short in the area of teaching the word of God. And some churches just simply don't put an emphasis upon teaching people the Word of God. I'm not talking about teaching from the Word of God, not teaching about the Word of God. I'm talking about actually teaching the Word of God. And there is a difference. And some of that as well, not only as churches don't put the emphasis on it, but truth be told, it's also because some believers just lack an interest for it. There's a lack of commitment to want to really learn the Word of God. Many believers, honestly, would rather just kind of be like entertained spiritually. And they kind of take their mindset from the world, you know, give me a quick video clip. You know, a video clip can't be more than three minutes because then I get bored. So if it's going to be a good video clip, it has got to be under the three-minute mark or I start to lose interest, right? And some people kind of take this whole mindset of the, the, the world we live in right now and they bring it into their spiritual life. And so they have to be stimulated and entertained and, and there's this lack and diminishing in the hearts of God's people for actually wanting to be taught and to actually be equipped spiritually and to develop spiritually. Instead, there's more of this, I want to be entertained. And sadly, what happens in that mindset is then believers remain in a state of spiritual infancy. And some churches become like a church nursery. And you go in the nursery. What's the mark of an infant? They're very selfish. They're very carnal. It's all about them, right? I mean, just think of how an infant is. And some believers are in a state of spiritual infancy and a lack of maturity. And a lot of that can be attributed to the, the devaluing of teaching the word of God. I'll tell you, when it comes to becoming and remaining spiritually strong, there is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of the word of God among the church. There's no substitute for it. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and that's what is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness so the man or woman of God can become thoroughly equipped for every good work. So a vital way that the church was being strengthened, we see beautifully here in the book of Acts in the church of Antioch. Well, verse 36 goes on to tell us, and then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing, he says. So after some time, Paul continues to be burdened here, we see, for a concern over the spiritual well-being of all these new believers in the area that they had gone to over their 18-month missionary journey and planted churches. And you could just imagine, I can, Paul's thoughts about these believers. He's wondering, he said, I wonder how they're doing. I, hope, I wonder if they're still following Jesus as faithfully as when we were there ministering with them. 
I, I, I wonder if wrong doctrine has come in and maybe they've got off track. I, I, I hope they're still following the Lord with the same fervor they are. I wonder if they're being taught and further grounded. And, and, and he's wondering, how are they doing spiritually? Are they struggling with sin? And, and, and he has all these things running through his mind out of his concern. And Paul proposes to Barnabas a follow-up trip. He says, hey, let's go see how they're doing. It's killing me. I'm worried about them. I'm concerned with their spiritual welfare. And his heart is stirred to do kind of a follow-up trip to check on their status. Paul here kind of reminds me of like a spiritual pediatrician, right? They don't just want to see you when you're sick. They also want to do those well visits, right? So uh, what's the purpose? A pediatrician says, look, I want to keep track of your status and your progress and how you're doing. And, and this is kind of like Paul here, like a spiritual pediatrician. He wants to check in to see how they're doing. Paul was not just content to see people get saved and hope that they were okay. He knew that they needed further investment spiritually, that children need ongoing investment for their health and strength and stability. And the same is true spiritually. They needed further discipleship. They needed to be taught more and strengthened and built up and taken care of to help mature. And Paul shows a true shepherd's heart there in our verse, in verse 36, that he was concerned how the sheep in the flock were doing. He wasn't just, hey, well, just, hey, as long as I got to do my thing in front of them and they were impressed with my song and dance spiritually, if they have a good memory of me, that's okay. Paul was genuinely concerned with how people were doing spiritually, what their spiritual welfare was. And let me just say, here we see, folks, another way the Lord strengthens people spiritually. And that is this, by putting into the hearts of his servants a genuine concern for how other people are doing spiritually. This is one of the ways that the Lord uses to strengthen us spiritually by putting a personal interest into the heart of people to care about how other people are doing in their spiritual lives and to actually, beyond that, even want to go help them and invest in them and minister to them. Let's be honest. At times, that is one of the ways that we have been strengthened, I'm sure, at times in our life spiritually. Because by the grace of God, God put a desire in some other believer's heart who actually was interested in how we were doing spiritually. And because God put into the heart of that person an interest for us, for our welfare and how we were doing spiritually, and they responded to that, and they checked in on how we were doing, and in love and compassion, they were concerned for us, and they invested in us. And they ministered to us, right? Because they cared about how we were doing spiritually. As a result of that, I was strengthened. And I was built up because they actually responded to the care and concern of God in their heart. And look on the other side of that and balancing that. We as well can strengthen other believers with that kind of heart and mindset of loving concern. Like Paul here in our text. By actually caring about how somebody else is doing spiritually. By actually letting our mind wonder at times, I wonder how he's doing spiritually. I wonder how she's doing spiritually. I wonder how they're doing in their walk and relationship with the Lord. And when that stirring from the Spirit comes in us, even then being willing to do something about it practically, to pick up the phone and call and ask them, or to go and visit them or connect with them and, hey, how are you doing spiritually? I mean, as Christians, sometimes we're actually pretty good caring about how somebody's doing physically or materially. Oh, this person's struggling to pay their bills. Maybe we should help them. Or this person's sick in the hospital. Maybe we... But what about how people are doing spiritually? We should also care about how somebody doing spiritually. Maybe they're paying all their bills and they're fit as a fiddle and very healthy. But maybe spiritually they're not doing good at all. And do we ever think about, I wonder how they're doing spiritually? And actually being open to yield to the Lord. Hey, this morning, how concerned are you about how other people are doing spiritually? And are you willing to get involved and do something about it? And actually engage that thought. When the Lord burdens your heart with that kind of concern for another, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Yield to it. Check in with them. Do what you can to invest in them. So Paul has this wonderful spiritual idea to go on another missions trip, if you would, another ministry trip, 
been some quite time since they've seen all these new believers. So Paul proposes here, verse 36, hey, let's go back. He says, visit the brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and let's go see how they're doing. Well, Barnabas agrees with the idea, but they have some different views on how to go about it. Look at verse 37. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John, who's called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. So look at this strong disagreement we find here that arises between these two godly men and more than that, these two spiritual leaders, men who'd known each other for years, served in partnership and ministry. Now, one is determined to do one thing and the other insists absolutely not we should not do that. And what's the issue? Please take note. It was about taking Mark along with them as part of their ministry team as they went back out on this next missionary journey. The central issue, please pay attention, was not doctrinal. This was not a doctrinal issue. This was not over a biblical concept or biblical truth. Rather, it was simply a matter of principles. It was simply a matter of personal convictions, strong viewpoints, deeply held opinion about a difference of opinion on a matter. Yet nonetheless, it led to a very sharp disagreement where these two men holding a strong opinion on the matter really butted heads over this. And let's refresh our memories over why they're having such a struggle over differing views about Mark and whether he should come along. The Bible tells us back in Acts chapters 12 and 13, years earlier, when Paul and Barnabas went out on their first missionary endeavor, it says, as they started ministering, that they took Mark along with them as their assistant. Mark was a younger man in the Lord. He was Barnabas's nephew. And they took him along to allow him to participate, to be a helper in the ministry work, no doubt to let him learn some things like an apprentice and gave him some opportunities. And he was probably, no doubt, assisting them as an assistant and a helper with practical tasks of the work. They were allowing him to share in some of the things that they were doing, serving in a support role. And they depended upon him to pull his weight, like others in the team, with the tasks and responsibilities that he was given. But as we've seen thus far in these recent chapters, the ministry is not easy, right? It hasn't been easy circumstantially, and it hasn't been easy spiritually either as we watch Paul and Barnabas going around serving. There was spiritual warfare that took place intensely. There were hard conditions to endure once in a while circumstantially. There was weariness, there was sickness, and add on to that constant opposition and persecution and spiritual warfare and dangers as well. And at some point, the Bible records for us that Mark departed and went back home. In fact, the language implies that he abandoned or he deserted the team leaving them in a difficult place and as a result of that desertion of Mark in the midst of their ministry work and not continuing on in faithfulness it caused a real difficulty among the ministry team now we are not told what happened and why Mark abandoned ship it could have been that just he's thinking this is more than I signed up for I didn't think it was going to be this hard and this intense it could have been that he didn't agree with some things maybe that they were doing. I mean, we could fill in the blanks there. The bottom line is, nonetheless, what he did was deserted the team. He didn't follow through. He didn't remain faithful and committed to serve. And that made it much more difficult for the rest of the team when he abandoned ship. And no doubt it discouraged everyone who was serving as he departed. When they needed his help most, he deserted them due to his own self-preservation. So now they're preparing to head back out on another journey, which could last months or up to years. And it's in light of that, we read that Barnabas was determined to take Mark along. That is, Barnabas thought to himself, you know, this would be a good opportunity and we should give him another chance. He's willing to take the risk to give him another try. He's hopeful that this time around, maybe he's grown as a young man a little bit and perhaps he can handle things better and remain faithful. Well, Paul hearing that, notice verse 38, it says, Paul insisted that they should not take him who had departed from them 
in Pamphylia and not going on with the work. Other translations say Paul disagreed strongly and did not think this was wise since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued with them in their work. So in Paul's perspective, he felt the work of God was way too important to entrust or allow someone who had already proved to be unfaithful who had already proved to not follow through and was a poor steward when given the opportunity. And Paul knew ministry wasn't easy. He knew it involved sacrifice. He knew it required tremendous commitment and that was essential. And there would be enough challenges generally so he didn't want to bring along a potential liability. And so this is why Paul kind of digs his heels in and he says, look, I don't want the team to be discouraged again. I don't want to repeat the same pattern again. I'm concerned that that would just happen. And he felt Mark wasn't ready. And Paul put a high premium on faithfulness and commitment. And Paul insisted he shouldn't come. In fact, the language there, Barnabas determined, and then Paul insisted that he should not come. The Greek is literally in the tense of an ongoing verb. The idea is Barnabas kept being determined we should bring him. And Paul kept insisting, no, we should not. So that's the implication here. You have this picture of this ongoing dispute and debate. And look at this, folks. You have two godly men, spiritual leaders, strongly debating and arguing and disputing with differences of opinion due to strongly held principles, personal convictions, which stemmed from what? Just unique personalities, differences of personality. How refreshing that the Bible is so brutally honest at times, that the Holy Spirit doesn't keep this from us, but allows us to see this picture in God's word that even godly people and spiritual people can have strong disagreements. Every married couple is going, I'm free, free at last. Really? You mean what just happened in our home yesterday or on the way to church? That happens to godly people too? Oh, yes, it does. And even these godly men, these are apostles sometimes had such strong differences of perspective and opinion on situations or approaches or how to handle things that it led to disputing and arguing it passionately over what was right or wrong. I'm not saying it's always proper or even best, but God shows that it does happen. And I'm thankful that God's honest with us, even among believers, even in partnerships and friendships between brothers and sisters in the Lord, even in churches and in ministry, even in marriages, at times, strong determination or even just principles and convictions can meet with strong insistence and resistance on the opposite end of that thought process. So what happens, right, when you have an irresistible force meet an immovable object? Well, thus verse 39. Then the contention became so sharp they parted from one another. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So the disagreement grew so intense, look at this, they actually agreed to disagree once for all and separated from working together and went different paths. And each of them not only separated relationally from one another, but they each went their separate way and they did what they felt was right. And they went in opposite directions, each continuing to serve the Lord in different ways and in different areas. Barnabas, it says here in our text, took Mark and he sailed to Cyprus. That was Barnabas's hometown. That was the first place they went on a missionary journey. That was the first place they stopped. And I no doubt believe Barnabas continued as a godly man. We see him in the scripture to keep on ministering as he always did at this point. However, the Bible tells us nothing more of Barnabas and his ministry. We also read that Paul chose Silas because Silas, remember, stuck around. Paul chose Silas as his new ministry partner, and he did what he proposed. It says Paul chose Silas, verse 40, and departed, being commended by the brethren of the grace of God and went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. So Saul or Paul being determined to follow what he believed God told him to do initially, he invites Silas to come along as his new ministry partner. And it is interesting that the Holy Spirit tells us here that they, these two, were commended 
to the grace of God to go out from the church and went through the areas as before, strengthening the churches. We know as the book of Acts goes on, planting new churches. And this becomes the mark now of the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. And the rest of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit records the ministry and missions work of Paul the Apostle as we go forward from here. Now, I imagine this decision and separation from this further partnership together and parting of ways was probably a really difficult thing. I mean, these men had a bond. They had served together. So who was right and who was wrong in this given situation here of separation relationally? I don't know if it's fair to honestly say. Truth be told, in some ways, perhaps both of them were right. And let me explain what I mean by that. It was right and best probably for Barnabas to take John Mark along at this stage and season. And it was right and best for somebody like Paul the Apostle to not take Mark along at this juncture in this season. See, it was right for Barnabas to take along Mark and spend time with him because Mark had failed. He needed to be further discipled, but he had great potential. But he needed somebody who could kind of spend some extra time with him. And Barnabas' personality was perfect for this. Because Barnabas was a compassionate, encouraging, sympathetic man. He was well-suited. And this was the right guy for the right time to be with Mark to help him at a slower pace, invest him, get him back on track, bring out his fullest potential. And eventually, Mark blossoms into this really great servant of the Lord. At the end of Paul's life, he's going to say, hey, get Mark and bring him over here to help me now. That guy's useful. In the same way, it was right, I believe, and best for Paul not to take Mark along at this juncture in what Paul was going to continue to do in church planting and intensive work because the front lines of ministry and church planting is not for the faint of heart. It's just not. It's not something that's an easy path. It's intense and difficult. It's like trying to take a, a plow and go out in an iron field sometimes. And there are difficulties and challenges and it requires a lot of stamina and determination to remain faithful and to keep putting one foot in front of the other and press on when it's not easy and when discouragement sets in and you need to be willing to make personal sacrifices. And Paul understood these realities and Paul was a very determined and driven man in ministry and he took the work very seriously. And Paul was, Paul was just not a hand holder in ministry. That just wasn't his nature. He didn't have the opportunity to do that if he was going to continue to do the thing the Lord was leading him to do. And I think, therefore, if Mark was along, the same pattern could have happened again and it could have been catastrophic. It not only might have slowed up and hindered the work Paul needed to do, which was more extensive on the second and third ministry trips, but it could have really just shipwrecked some relationships and caused some major problems. So in light of that, Barnabas was probably the right guy to bring along uh, Mark. Paul was probably wise in not having him along. And as a result of this strong disagreement, it allowed for Mark to grow and it allowed for Paul and the ministry not to be restrained. And both of them kind of did their own thing. In this, I think you see a final way the Lord strengthens us spiritually. And that's this, is learning how at times to navigate relational difficulties. Because they come and they happen. And, and at times, due to different personalities and principles we hold, we're stressed and stretched and sometimes we dispute and don't see things the same way. And as a result of that, we have personal conflicts and even sometimes relational separations. But in the midst of that, by the grace of God, you've got to learn how to carry on and keep going. And that's where character is developed. That's where strength is developed. And not sit there and cry over your spilled milk, but to put your eyes on the Lord and say, look, stuff happens. And what you do learn through those times and how you are strengthened through those times is you realize that the Lord never leaves you and the Lord never forsakes you. You know, you may be here this morning and one of the stumbling blocks that's been in your life is continuing to stumble again and again over some relational issue that's happened. A marriage that's failed or some important person the Lord took out of your life, or some major you know, ministry catastrophe, or I mean, whatever it may be. And, and, and the Lord is saying, look, I don't want that to be a stumbling block. 
I want that to be a strengthening thing where your character's developed and you learn, I never leave you. I've never forsaken you. So let's get back on the horse and keep the journey going. 